Welcome to the Kingdom Way Podcast. My name is Justin Gravat, and I hope that this will be a place where we can have meaningful conversations about the Christian faith to better help us follow Jesus, the living and reigning King. My goal is that through these theological discussions, we can better learn about the way of Jesus, which will profoundly influence how we live each and every day. The gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news Jesus preached, offers a new way of living, and that requires that we take seriously what Jesus taught and how he lived. But this work is absolutely worth it, as following and practicing this kingdom way of Jesus leads to an abundant and flourishing life as we connect learning What are your deepest commitments, beliefs, and aspirations? All of us seem to share certain ideas about goodness, relationships, freedom, and beauty, and what a good life looks like. The important question though is, can your worldview, your way of viewing reality, make sense of and fulfill those aspirations? My guest today says, quote, the Christian story makes sense of our deepest longings. That is, the story that Christianity sets forth fits well with the things we value most and with the kinds of people we want to be. The Christian story has the resources to ground those desires. It can explain why we have the aspirations we do, and it can show that those aspirations connect with what is real. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of the Kingdom Way podcast. Today I'm with Dr. Greg Ganzel. He is professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in Southern California. I actually graduated from Talbot School of Theology and was honored to have Greg is my professor in one of my classes there, which was great. Uh, Greg has authored several books and published dozens of articles. Uh, Greg and his wife, Jeannie, have three children and live in California. Greg, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. It's good to be here. It's totally an honor to have you on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, You wrote a really insightful book called Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story fulfills human aspirations. So what led you to write a book about human aspirations, human desires, and how those connect with the Christian story? Well, um, that's a great question, because the backstory is very important to me about this book. Um, I, I started working on it when before I got to Talbot, and I was working um, with the Rivendell Institute at Yale University. And for a, for a while, I was adjunct faculty in their philosophy department, part-time. Um, uh, and we were trying to reach out to graduate students and faculty. That's one of the aspects of what we were doing with um, Rivendell. And I began to, um, as a team, we began to ask questions like, what is it about the gospel that should be compelling to people? And how can we frame our witness around these um, aspects of the gospel? And so I began to think, what do you do with with a secular university professor? Somebody who's really smart and probably doesn't think Christianity is um, credible or interesting. What would be a great conversation starter for that person? And, and I wrote this book to be a conversation starter. And the, and the audience is uh, basically secular university professors. 
it's not a book of scholarship um, in that you have to be a philosopher to read it, although I mentioned a bunch of philosophers along the way. Um, but I was trying to think, how, how can we help someone move from kind of a fundamental assumption that Christianity is mostly irrelevant to, wow, it really does connect with things that matter. And that's kind of what I was thinking of with the book. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it certainly speaks to secular professors and philosophers. I think it also has a lot of value, too, for younger audiences or a, a wider audience. And I like how you frame this as not so much an apologetics book, which is trying to show that Christianity is true. I know you believe that. Yeah. Um, but this is more to say, how can I present Christianity in such a way that it's compelling where people want to believe it's true? And I yes. think that's often missed in some apologetic circles where it's just about kind of showing someone that Christianity is true with the facts and evidence. And don't get me wrong, there's absolutely a place for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I like this different approach where it's almost like you want someone to want to believe in Christianity and want to find the evidence. And I think that's a really right. a great way to frame it. So you talk about near the beginning of, of the book, you talk about how everyone has a core identity, the deepest sense the yeah. person has of who she is and longs to be. So talk about this core identity more. What is it and why is it important to reflect on what our core identity is? Well, the, I mean, core identity is uh, the way I use the term. I made up the term, so, you know, it might not be a great term. Um, is, like you said, you quoted from the book, it's, it's our deepest sense of who we are and who we want to be. And um, I began to realize that a lot of our talk in Christian circles about worldview misses a fundamental issue. And I used to teach that the, our worldview is the deepest thing about us. But I don't believe that anymore, right? I think our core identity is, in a sense, more fundamental. And a person changes worldviews often in line with core identity, right? Who do I want to be? Um, this is rarely expressed um, explicitly. But you can, you can see how some of the obstacles to the Christian message that are very current today line up with this kind of um, observation. People think Christianity um, teaches horrible things, and nobody wants to be that narrow-minded. And that becomes the, the basis for rejection. Um, and you can trace that down to a core identity. People want to be a certain kind of person, and they associate Christianity with a very different kind of person. And, um, and un unless we pay some attention to that, or, or to use the metaphor Jesus uses about the soils, the soil is just getting harder and harder for uh, the seed of the gospel. Um, so um, I, I, there are a lot of applications to core identity. And, you know, I'll just say a few and we can follow up on some if you'd like. Um, sure. I think the whole phenomena of people, uh, young people leaving the faith is about core identity. I think that's probably the, the number one 
issue. So something drives a wedge between a person's deep sense of what their life should be and what they imagine the Christian story to be. Um, and that's how people lose their faith. And so part of our teaching and discipleship ministry in the church has to be helping people bring Jesus into our core identities, that, that he is shaping who I most want to be. So this is for a Christian audience. Um, and so I think there's a lot of application for that. Sometimes we think teaching the worldview is the solution to these things. And of course it's helpful. But, but if I think to be a Christian is to be judgmental and narrow-minded, I'm going to reject that because I don't want to be that way. Um, and, um, and a lot of people in the church come to believe that about being Christians because of all the influences around us. So there's a, there's a discipleship element here. But in terms of um, outreach to the secular world, um, there's a strong convergence between what people want and the story of Christianity. And this is what I'm trying to get at in this book. If people could just see, well, I do want to be this kind of person, then Christianity is going to make a lot more sense. Mm. That's that's great. Yeah, I, I know in the book you compare the Christian worldview, the Christian story, with an atheistic perspective. And yeah. I think you mentioned how there could be a dozen different uh, options to survey, but those are the two you look at in this particular work here. Mm -hmm. And you suggest that the Christian story has the resources to ground our deepest held commitments and desires. And you list several of those. You go through and unpack several of those different desires. And one of those commitments that almost everyone shares is that people matter most. And you give the example how mm -hmm. if you know you only have a week to live, let's say, that you're going to want to spend that time with your family, maybe a couple of your closest friends. That really demonstrates what what is... What is the most meaningful to you? And that's those relationships with friends and family. I've seen some studies that show that the health of yep. your relationships is correlated with your happiness as well. We want to be loved and known and to love and know others. So how do you see this almost universal mm -hmm. aspiration that people have? How do you see this pointing to Christianity where, um, mm -hmm. and not to spoil your response here, but I know the Christian story, the most fundamental thing is personal. So how do you yeah. see that connected there? Well, and that's, a, that's where you start, right? The, the Christian story starts with, with creation. And I make a point in the book that when I bring up creation, I'm not interested in squabbling over the details. You know, how old is the earth? You know, did God use evolution? You know, to, in my mind, that stuff is so much more trivial I mean, it's important in a certain context. Then, then the resources our view of creation bring to what it means to be human. And this comes down to God himself is personal, and we are made in his image, which includes, there are aspects that theologians unpack about what that means. It includes um, both that our capacities are... Um, reflections of the nature of God to some degree, 
And also, God has given us a task. And this in Genesis is, is sometimes called the cultural mandate. To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And, and these things are tied into being what it means to be human. Um, and so, kind of starting from the most basic thing we can think of, in the Christian story, there really is a human nature. There are facts about what it means to be human. And those facts are, are connected to the fact that God made us for his reasons. And that grounds a strong sense of human nature. We don't invent our human nature. Um, we, we receive it as a gift. On, on various atheist stories, and of course, there are a whole bunch of different atheist sure. kinds of ways of approaching things. Um, human nature is accidental. And it's incidental. Right, so, so the fact that human beings exist at all is just a, a lucky accident for us. There's no foresight, no purpose. Um, we can enjoy our capacities as human beings, but they don't play a role in any anything bigger. Um, but the Christian story grounds it from the very beginning. Personhood was first. Um, and on one side, I, I call this really basic and foundational, not that it's necessarily simple, but it's kind of like the very first, you know, sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and unpacking that provides these resources for us to think differently about what it means to be human. And the, the way these texts lead us to think um, fits with things that we we actually do care most about persons. Um, so I, I think there's a deep connection there. I'm happy you didn't uh, get too much into the young earth, old earth creation stuff because yeah. I may have had to end the podcast right there if we disagree. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I actually think those things, we spend too much time on them. Right. No, I, I completely yeah. agree. And we won't spend any time on it in yeah. this podcast either. Yeah, I think that's... It's a really profound point to think of sort of the ultimate reality being personal versus impersonal. I, I don't know. I find that comforting in one sense. And I think it does connect to your next point and the And you touched on this already a little bit, but I was going to ask about kind of the sense that we all have that there's value, meaning, and purpose. And it's not just this kind of subjective made up purpose right you, you talk right. about this cosmic purpose and this objective mm -hmm. sense of value meaning and purpose so at least i think i think so many people have that and, and and to me it would be hard to live without that sense of purpose mm -hmm. i guess you could do with just making it up that would be difficult at least for me to live meaningfully that way so i wonder if you could talk about how that sense that we seem to have. I know you already touched on it a little bit, but and it's connected mm -hmm. to the the personal nature of God as well, but how that points to the Christian story. And yeah, I try to make the distinction, which I, I think is really helpful, between what I call cosmic or global purpose, meaning, and value, and local meaning and value and purpose. Um, because sometimes Christians will say things like, you know, without God, there's no meaning. And to be honest, that sounds insane to our friends who are atheists. 
because they have lots of meaning in their life, right? They, they find meaning and value in their families, the people they love, the projects that are important to them, their ability to, you know, contribute. And we don't want to get into the, the game of saying, oh, that's not meaning. Um, but but the, the real distinction is that's local meaning. Um, there, on an atheistic story, there's no global meaning. Um, in the sense that, that um, there's a meaning outside of me. There's a purpose outside of me. And my story fits into this bigger story that's real and true, um, which you get on the, on the Christian um, story. Um, local meaning works pretty well for people for a long time. But something I've been thinking about this year, uh, we, we had a dear friend that I worked with at the Rivendell Institute, um, who just passed away, he had ALS, which is a, a horrible disease. And so his body was wasting away over several years. Hmm. And, but his mind was sharp. Mm-hmm. And, and you think, if all he had was local meaning, then his suffering would have been pretty meaningless. Because there was no good that was going to come out of that suffering, or no no substantive good, um, but because he was a follower of Christ and he was tapped into the fact that God had purposes for him, even his suffering that wasn't going to end in this life um, could be grounded in a bigger story, hmm. and and because. His death in January is not the end of his story. Right? There's hope of full healing in the future. And, and you don't get that with just local meaning. And it's really at the end of our lives that this distinction becomes the most poignant. Hmm. Because for a long time, I can find meaning and value in the people I love and the stuff I like to do. But your last week on Earth that meaning becomes a, a little bit anemic to hold our identities together. Yeah, and I wonder if there's a connection, too, with uh, the rise of anxiety, particularly among the rising generations, millennials and Gen Z, because they're told and they often believe that they have to make up their own meaning because there is no cosmic objective meaning. Yeah. And that puts a lot of pressure on someone to find and make up and live out your own purpose. And so I wonder if that's connected then to some of the anxiety that's just rampant now amongst rising generations. I, I think that's a a good insight. I think you're right. It's too much of a burden Mm. in one sense. It's like asking your four year old child to uh, budget for the family. (laughs) Right. It's like that. He wasn't made for that as a four year old. And and, you know. The parents responsibility is to shield him from that and then train him when he's, you know, capable. Um, But but to be telling these 15, 16, 17 year olds that that, first of all, they have to invent their identity and their purpose, and their meaning. And it has to be tied to a, a kind of 
internal passion, that is putting a tremendous amount of pressure on people. Um, rather than being able to receive our purpose as a gift. And it's kind of like the little kid sees the parents taking care of them and he relaxes. Mm -hmm. He says, I know my parents will take care of me. Um, I think there's a good illustration yeah. there. No, that's great. And Greg, you talk about good and evil. And I, I love this section of your, your book here and our intuitions about goodness, how we seem to be drawn to goodness. And more than that, we think that goodness is how things ought to be. Um, right. It's almost like we assume this should be the default setting of reality. And sometimes we don't even notice when things are going well. It's just kind of like business as usual. Mm -hmm. And then something sudden happens that's evil or there's some suffering or brokenness, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then it really shocks us and rocks our world. And you even talk about how there's no such thing as intrinsic evil. Rather, evil is a distortion of the good. And I know, I think C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. talks a little bit about that as well. So yeah. I wonder if you could talk about goodness and evil. And I, I always like the imagery, mm -hmm. too, of lightness and darkness. And just these mm -hmm. intuitions we have about goodness, why we're drawn to it, mm -hmm. why we think that's how things ought to be, and yeah. then just the distortion that evil is in this world. Yeah, I, I, I think this is... Uh, a, a widely shared fundamental assumption, even though it, it might be vague in a lot of people's lives. Um, but we really want goodness. We want to be good people, however we understand that. Um, and we want to experience goodness. Um, and, you know, the illustration I used in the book about goodness, it's not about evil, but badness because badness mm -hmm. is a broader category, is, um, you know, I go out and start my car 20 times a week and I never think about it. But if the car doesn't start, if something goes wrong with the car, then I pay attention. I expect my car to work. And, and, and that's kind of a picture of this um, assumption that's, that's, that's articulated with, with the notion that goodness is the way things should be, and badness, and, and moral badness is evil, badness is the way things shouldn't be. Um, um, our heroes, apart from rock stars and sports stars, right, are good people. People who stand against culture and sacrifice to do good things. We are drawn to these kinds of people. Um, that's why there's a Nobel Peace Prize and not a Nobel War Prize. Um, mm. And, and um, <laughs> so, I, so I, I think this is a widely shared assumption. And of, and of course, on the Christian story, it makes sense because God, who's the most fundamental reality, like we talked about a minute ago, is good. And evil is, a, is an intrusion into the good universe through the rebellion of free creatures. Yeah, you mentioned the example of your car starting. We've had some issues yeah. with our water heater leaking, and it is so disruptive. You know, it's one of those things where I naturally think I shouldn't have to be worrying 
about the water heater working. Um, it, it should work, but it's not. And it's just so disruptive. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, maybe it's not a moral badness, but it sure feels like a moral evil sometimes <laughs> when, when that water's leaking. There. Yes. <laughs> uh, it does feel like it. You, 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 you want to throw the water heater in jail or something. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about beauty as another element, and this is a fascinating discussion similar to goodness we seem to be drawn to beauty i think about i don't know just a beautiful landscape mm-hmm. or there's you know a beautiful piece of art whatever it is mm-hmm. and it, i always think it seems to transport us to something beyond and something bigger and it taps into something profound within us mm-hmm. and I, I love that so talk about how the christian story makes the most sense of beauty we experience with god being the master artist how does beauty fit with an atheistic worldview compared to a Christian worldview? Yeah, um, so, you know, you put your finger on it. God is the master artist. And, and sometimes in, in circles that do a lot of apologetics, we think of God as an engineer because we love the fine-tuning argument, which is a great argument, and I actually think it's wonderful. And, and, and so we think about design and and um, this kind of thing, but but God is not only an engineer; He's also an artist. And uh, my dad was an engineer, so I, even though I'm a philosopher, I have engineering um, tendencies in my brain. Um, the the notion that God is interested in beauty, that He created a beautiful universe is um i think compelling and and so so there's something connected in 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 the purposes of god um there's a connection between the beauty he creates and something i call his extravagant generosity Hmm. and and so sometimes i ask the, the question why are there so many galaxies and so many species of frogs well, it's because God is extravagantly generous in creation. And, and he likes flinging these things into reality because they're, these things are delightful. Um, but um, so I, in the book, I tell a story that you'll probably remember. I was speaking in this class at the University of New Hampshire and uh, philosophy of religion class. And at the end of the discussion, the professor said, okay, here's my question. Why dinosaurs? And he's probably asking, why did God make dinosaurs if God is real? And my answer was, well, because they're so cool. (laughs) And he laughed and he said, yeah, that's probably, that's a good answer, right? right? I mean, wouldn't you make dinosaurs if you were God? Absolutely. Every five-year-old kid knows dinosaurs are cool. And... And, and so there's this sense of more than just efficiency in the creative story. Hmm. Um, but the other aspect of God being the master artist is I, I, I use that word master kind of like a medieval guild. God, is, God not only makes art, he makes artists. Hmm. And our creative capabilities are a reflection of his. Um, and, and he wants us to bring 
good and true and beautiful and useful things out of this world. Um, and so when we create, whether it's what we call strictly in the artistic realm or even in our business lives, mm-hmm. and we're making good things, we, we are experiencing and expressing aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, I, I think our vocations line up with, with God's vocation, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Um, so the, the whole creative endeavor is, is grounded in God. Now, on an atheistic story, it's not that this stuff's impossible, right? Beauty, you know, we find certain things beautiful, and um, you, you could give a Darwinian story of why bees like flowers, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, right. and eventually, you know, as our cognitive capacities develop, we find certain things beautiful. But, but the beauty of things doesn't, is not a sign of some deeper reality hmm. in that story. So I, I really don't want to say that there's a huge difference in the atheist Christian story such that the atheists don't have an account for our, our experience of beauty. But it's going to be a local thing for the atheists as opposed to a cosmic thing. I hope you're enjoying my discussion with Greg Ganzel on how our deepest longings make the most sense in the Christian story. Before going back to the discussion, I wanted to share a brief thought with you. God is often described as almighty, righteous, and powerful. He is also, though, a God who is with us. For those who have given their allegiance to God and King Jesus, the God of the universe is with and for us. In the book of Joshua, we are called to be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the end of his ministry, he tells his followers that he is with them to the end of the age. We follow a God who is with us. And as the Apostle Paul says, he is a God who is for us, who promises that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The only condition given is that we draw near to God in faithfulness. The words of scripture promise that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And if we seek and search for God with all of our being, we will find the one God who is with us and for us. This is actually an area I'd like to land on a little bit. I'm curious, do you think beauty is objective or subjective and or even if you would, wouldn't even use those categories uh, you know i'm thinking of the the expression beauty is in the eye of the beholder and yeah it's it's a complex subject but i'm curious it sounds like you're leaning more towards the objective sense but feel free to correct me and and why would you think it's objective versus subjective so it's interesting that that phrase, beauty is in the eye of beholder, I just learned recently, that comes from David Hume. Mm. And of course, for David Hume, moral goodness is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> right. um, you know, because he was trying to be a very consistent empiricist. And he says, look, if I, if I 
can't observe with my senses the property of moral wrongness, then moral wrongness is not attached to the action. And he, and he says, this is his moral theory, he says, when I turn my gaze inward, what I find is certain actions leave me with a sense of disapprobation. That's his word, um, which in English means yuck, right? If I <laughs> contemplate someone exploiting another person, I just feel this sense of yuckiness about it. And that's really the root of our moral assessment. So for him, moral assessments are internal, um, having to do with our emotional response. It's not a cognitive response to the um, something we hear about or witness. Um, and so it makes sense that beauty is going to be the same. All right, so... so he already had a subjectivist view of um, not just even moral values, but his whole theory of cause and effect and things. Well, we're in danger of going on a philosophy tangent. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but, um, but it's still, it, I mean, there is still the, the puzzle that different people find different things beautiful. Mm -hmm. Right? So there, so there is a diversity of responses and I'm not entirely sure what to do with that. Um, I do think that there is a strong objective component to beauty. Um, there might also be some subjective component. Um, I'm sure it's very, very complicated. Um, and, I, and in the book, I, I tell this story. If, if, if I am in the you know, the Met in New York looking at the art and I'm looking at a Van Gogh and I think, yeah, no, there's no beauty there. <laughs> there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. It's not that there's something wrong with the painting. Right? There, 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 it seems like there is this objective element and if I can't see it, it, it means there's something wrong with me. Just like, um, I'm, you know, if someone's tone deaf or colorblind, right, there's, a, there's an inability to be responsive to things, which comes in varying degrees. And I think, I think that sometimes accounts for some of the diversity of response to things. You, you think about pop music and, uh, you know, I'm thinking a lot about my dad because he passed away and he loved big band music and he couldn't stand rock and roll. Right. And so this was a constant, you know, mostly playful debate in our, in our house. And, um, well, there's, there's styles of music and there, you know, and, and so that's where this diversity makes you think, is there, is there something subjective? But I think underneath that, um, there are objective things about beauty. And, and this makes sense, of course, in a Christian story. Right? God himself is beautiful. Um, and, um, but it would take a lot to unpack this. And yeah. it's not an area I've, uh, you know, this is not the area I've done a lot of study in. So. Sure. I do wonder, when we read through the biblical narrative and things are called beautiful or something similar to that, you know, is that just, 
God's subjective opinion on the matter, mm-hmm. or is he is that referencing something deeper or higher? Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it seems like it fits more comfortably with the biblical narrative to hold some kind of objectivity with beauty. But like you said, I mean, that's I haven't studied so. it much, and that's probably another conversation for us to have. But it is fascinating. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a good way to say it. You, you talk about how there is also a danger with beauty, and that is that we worship the thing itself versus viewing it as a signpost to something mm-hmm. deeper or beyond. And I think that certainly is a danger where you view the beautiful music or the scenery or the piece of art, whatever it is, and you stop there and you don't say, you don't continue on yeah. to the artist behind whatever the, the thing is itself. Mm-hmm. And I know some people talk about creation as, you know, creation is kind of the end all and it's beautiful, but there's, you know, that is it. it we don't go beyond that. So talk about mm-hmm. how do we avoid that error uh, with ourselves? And maybe if we're talking to someone else and say, mm-hmm. don't just stop with the beautiful thing, but let's, let's talk about the artist behind it. Yeah, I think that I think that can be um, tricky. I mean, when you use the word worship, we in a lot of conversations we would have to translate that into English. Um, but there has been a movement in intellectual history, several movements, where hmm. aesthetic experience is the location of human meaning. And 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 I make passing references to the Romantic movement of the well, flourishing in the early 19th century, uh, where, you know, the visual arts and music and poetry um, were, were the locations of uh, meaning. And, and, you know, the phrase, art will save you, emerges out of that. Now, the Romantics were in part a response, a reaction to the, the Enlightenment that thought reason will save us. And, and it became increasingly, this is a very rough intellectual history, right? There are a lot of details that I'm skating over. Um, it became increasingly um, clear to some people that, that the world, that the rationalists or the Enlightenment leaves us is a world without meaning. And so in an attempt to find meaning, there's kind of a bracketing of reason is not the path to meaning, so aesthetic experience. And if, and if we, if we um, put the burden of our own identity on experience, then, then that's kind of what I think what you mean when you say we worship the, the art. Um, and of course, we, we do that in contemporary culture with all kinds of experiences. It's not just artistic experiences. You know, extreme sports, you know, following, I was going to say the Red Sox, but that doesn't always go well. Um, and um, um, and, so, and so, so there's a, there's a danger of going so far and not far enough. And because aesthetic experience will, will give us local meaning. And it's good at that. But beauty points beyond, and, and you've already alluded to this. 
beauty is a sign. Um, it's it, and and rather than putting the burden of my existence and identity on beauty or the experience of beauty, I can receive these things as a gift and not, I don't have to extract my meaning from them, but they can point to the fact that there is a, a master artist and who grants global meaning. Um, so I think something like that is, is how we think about it. Yeah. And I've heard from different pastors and theologians as well that when you're at church, for example, that there is that danger where you're so caught up in the moment with the music and the corporate singing, which are all wonderful things. Mm -hmm. But if you just stay in that and don't look to the, the God who you're actually worshiping and praising and just enjoying the experience itself, mm -hmm. like if you were at a rock concert, for example, there's that kind of high you right. get that with, you know, hundreds or thousands of people singing along with you and there's that those awesome feelings you get and that can sometimes play out at churches as well so there's the danger where you can't just stay there you have to yep. look to beyond to the artist behind it the god that you're worshiping the creator i think in this chapter yep. as well you reference c.s lewis's argument from desire and i know you don't spend a lot of time on it in the book but i i, I mm -hmm. find that such a fascinating argument too that we have these desires within us yep. which point to certain things in reality, but then we have this desire for something transcendent or something mm -hmm. unlimited or infinite and nothing that we experience can satisfy that. Mm -hmm. So it seems to point to something beyond something perfect, something infinite. So I don't know, do, do you find yeah. that to be a, a good argument? I probably botched the argument itself, but... No, you, you, you said it very well. I'm smiling because um, I, this summer I have to write a big essay on the argument from desire. <laughs> so I started doing some reading. Uh, it's going to come out in something, I think it's called The Blackwell Companion to Apologetics or something like this. Um, I don't know if I got the title right. And, and I'm really wrestling with the argument from desire. And of course, you know, in contemporary times, it starts with C.S. Lewis. Pascal has things that point in that direction as well. And um, um, the, 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 key, mm -hmm. the key thing in the argument from desire it is what you might call, I'm going to, this isn't a great word, real human desires have things that satisfy them. And Lewis talks about food and, you know, shelter, relationships and things like this. And if we find ourselves with desires that nothing in the physical world satisfy and they, and they look like real human desires or, or um, natural or something like this, then we can expect that there's mm -hmm. something that satisfies them. Um, I think there's some tricky things about this argument. One is you have to make a distinction between what counts as a real human desire and what counts as an artificial human desire. And, um, you know, so you might desire a water heater that works. Um, <laughs> and, but that's a little bit artificial because, you know, a hundred years ago, no one had that desire mm -hmm. because there weren't you know, water heaters, or maybe 200 years ago. Um, so it, it's not on the same level as your desire for food. 
but what but what's interesting your desire for a water heater that works is not really a desire for that appliance it's that you don't have to worry about it that your floors don't get damaged that your house is safe for your family um and yeah. those actually are more closely connected to what lewis and others would mm -hmm. call natural desires so it might be that that really what sound like artificial desires is when we desire the means a particular means to satisfying some uh, deeper human desire and and that might help strengthen the argument the big objection is, of course is the freudian kind of objection which is we misidentify the desires for things outside of this world and they are distortions of human desires that are normally fulfilled with a relationship with a father or something like that. So that has to be explored. I think there's a lot of work to be done on this. Yeah, no, I've, I find it a, a fascinating line of thinking. And I think if you think it's a good argument, I think it has a lot of value with mm -hmm. the average person who maybe, yes. you know, we, we know about the Kalam cosmological argument or the mm -hmm. fine-tuning argument. And these can be powerful in their own way, but sometimes it's hard for someone to kind of, you know, if you talk about Big Bang cosmology and, you know, the <laughs> dark matter yes. and all that kind of stuff, that can fly over people's heads. It flies over my head sometimes as well. Yeah. So I think when you talk about something a little bit closer to home, like moral arguments or arguments from desire, for some people, those are more compelling. So maybe at a, a later time, we can have you back on the podcast yeah. and you can talk about after you finish the, that chapter or this article. article. Only if it's any good, right? <laughs> if, if it stinks, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but I, let me say something to your comment. I think you're absolutely right about um, the limits of some of our classical apologetics. And, and if we're thinking about average secular people or mo even moderately secular people that we would like to hold forth the gospel to, they don't care that much about the details of these arguments. And so it's not going to, um, it's going to move people more rarely. But when you start talking about people's desires or their moral sensibilities, mm -hmm. these, like you said, closer to home, that's a great image. Um, I think this is, is where apologists and Christian thinkers are beginning to spend more time and I think it's really wise and we can pour more energy into that part of it. Mm. Yeah. I know there's the branch of imaginative apologetics, yep. which, mm -hmm. you know, has, has been there for a long time, but I think there's been some great thinkers and great books that have come out really yep. advocating for that, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm excited to yep. see that. And so my final question here, it's kind of a two part question. You, Near the end of the book, you talk about the hope we all long for, the profound hope we all long for, this this idea of peace and fulfillment. Right. And you argue that that can be found through union with God and life eternal as he offers that restoration. So I, I'd love mm -hmm. for you to unpack that, but then mm -hmm. also specifically talk about 
how can we use these human aspirations as we evangelize and talk to people around us? And maybe the idea of hope is a good one to kind of use as a, as an example, you know, if we're an accountant at work or if we're a stay at home mom or whatever it is, we're at the dentist and, you know, we have 15 minutes to talk to the person helping us clean our teeth, whatever the example is, how can we start to naturally use these aspirations that most of us have and start to say, okay, how does this connect to the Christian story? Let's say hope, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a two-part question yeah. there, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I think one thing we have to learn better is the Christian vision of the afterlife is one in which we'll be more fully human than we are now. Right? Our humanity will be fully restored from all the damage our sin does to it. And other people sin. Um, now sometimes we get this picture that, that we'll be floating around on clouds. We get that from the cartoons. And, and it seems subhuman. But actually, we'll have a more full human um, experience and existence in the afterlife. And, and so therefore, our human story is not over. And this gives us hope. So even when we're lying on our deathbeds, or like my dad with dementia, if, if we're losing our cognitive faculties, we can, to the degree that we can think, we, we can think, yes, but all this will be restored. And, and our future is good. Um, and, and so I think we have a real crisis of hopelessness because people are convinced their futures are not going to be good. And and there are, and this connects to the anxiety question you talked about before. Andy Crouch in a lecture one time said, "What is God doing in the world? He's he's restoring His image wherever it's found." And and that's kind of the mission of the church, to restore the image of God. And and that's a hope-filled picture. Um, so. I, I think we, we, we have to wrestle more with, with, the, with, with what it really means that we will be raised in physical form. Um, as far as brief conversations, you know, I, I, I think we want to ask, learn to ask questions about, you know, what, what gives you hope? You know, what, what would it be like to live with a really deep sense of hope? One of the ones that I've been thinking about is Paul's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Because if you look at that list of things, everybody wants relationships that look like that. And we can ask someone, what kind of relationships do you want? Do you want them characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Or the opposite of those things? Well, everybody... Nobody's going to say, I want my relationships to be characterized by hate and despair, you know, <laughs> um, un- unless maybe they're a screenwriter and that gives them fodder. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, just these very, we, we want to learn to make very short observations about the Christian story. You know, I think part of God's purposes for us are that we would flourish. And, and that's 
you know, and, and a lot of times it's a matter of one sentence. When you're sitting in the dentist's office waiting room and, and something comes up, you might have one sentence. And you want your sentence to be true, but also um, one that provokes more questions. Like, well, this is why I'm glad that God created us with purpose. Yeah, that reminds me of Greg Kokel from Stand yep. Reason, how he talks about putting a pebble in someone's shoe. Yes. And just one sentence, a few words mm -hmm. can often do that. And you never know the impact that that's going to have. Even if you never yeah. see that person again, hopefully you can and build that relationship. But sometimes right. you only get one sentence with someone and that can lead them on a journey. Maybe yeah. they look up what you said and like, hey, I found this book by this Christian author. And then there they go. Yeah. So I think that's absolutely part of it. I, I wonder if another way, you, you know, you've been talking about examples on how to kind of use this conversationally. I wonder if a, a way to do this would be to start with an area you agree with, with the other person, let's mm -hmm. say they're not a Christian, but they point out something is absolutely beautiful. Or you mm -hmm. talk about how, you know, the hero in the recent Marvel movie is, is really mm -hmm. good. Um, or the meaningful relationships that they value mm -hmm. with their friends and family, whatever it is. Right. And you agree with that. And then there's that position of agreement. So you're not starting with mm -hmm. something you disagree on. And then you just ask them, you know, oh, how do you make sense of that sense of goodness or beauty or the meaningful relationships or the hope you have? And yeah. then I think that could be a, another way to just start the conversations. And then maybe you could say, here's the Christian story and here's how I would make sense of it. What do you think of that? And that could be a conversational way to, to start with, with these human aspirations we share. I, I think you're right. And I think what you've done is you put your finger on the distinction, one of the distinctions between what you might call standard apologetics and this kind of approach is as soon as you, we wade into standard apologetics, we're disagreeing. I'm trying to make a case for God. You don't believe in God. And, um, and so people then get into debate mode. But the, the more you start with something that um, you, you're affirming the other person, yeah, your, your sense of this beauty is, is absolutely right. And, and uh, it makes me think of the artist. It, it, it's just a different conversational context. Um, and we want to affirm those desires, right? And so, so I mean, here's a principle that I, I, I teach my students is that everywhere the gospel goes, any culture, any situation, it'll do two things. It will always affirm and it will always correct, right? And, and it, can, it can be easy for us to think about the correcting as the more important part. But in terms of beginning conversations and, and helping people take the first steps, uh, the more we look for the affirmation, which is what you're talking about, then we can begin to say, wow, there is an artist, right? And God must just love beauty. And then someone says, well, well why do you think that? Well, well, look at this. Think about all the galaxies, you know, and, and this kind of thing. So I, th I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, that's good. And it seems like part of it too is almost pointing out what people take for granted that maybe they yes. 
take yeah. these net, these desires and commitments for granted without even realizing it. And so it's just pointing mm-hmm. out, Hey, you believe this and I agree with you. And let's yeah. talk about that. Like, why do we, why do we agree on these different issues here? Yeah. Well, Greg, we're coming up on an hour here. I, I want to respect sure. your time. Uh, are no there problem. a couple of projects you were working on in the next year or two that you're really excited about? Well, there's some things I'm working on. The next year or two is optimistic, right? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm writing this essay. I, I have to turn it in by the end of the summer on the argument from desire. Um, and um, But my main project, and I hope to begin some good writing this summer, is I want to do a book tentatively called Life, Death, and Freedom, Jesus Questions Nietzsche. And so I, I, I want to unpack Nietzsche's vision of life because I actually think that's what he's doing in his work. He's holding forth a vision of human flourishing. And of course, Jesus is doing this too, among other things. And, and because there's that shared project, it, it makes these guys great to put in conversation. I've been wanting to do that one forever. Um, so that'll take a while to finish. Sure. Um, um, part of it is if you're going to write on Nietzsche, you got to be really careful because people who read Nietzsche get very frustrated if you treat them superficially. Mm. And I'm trying not to do that. So I was going to say, maybe I'm looking could, forward to that. Yeah, no, that, that sounds fascinating. Maybe you could add a third character, but Jesus and Nietzsche may be enough. Those two might be enough yeah. to, to write a book about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, well, I hope. And, and, uh, We'll, we'll see where it goes. Well, here, let me let me end this podcast here by reading a quote from your book, which I think summarizes this idea that our longings are clues towards a greater story. And you say that the Christian story grounds and explains the things we care about most. The central features of the Christian story involve God, who creates the world and makes us in the divine image. We have meaning and value that is objective and cosmic, rather than being simply subjective and local. God made a good and beautiful world for us to explore and cultivate. Our commitment to people, our love of goodness and beauty, and our quest for freedom, all of these things fit within the Christian story, and it has the resources to capture our most profound longings. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, and I really commend your book to our listeners, and this was a great conversation. Thanks, Justin, and we'll do it again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Kingdom Way. If you found the conversation helpful in your walk with Jesus, please consider giving the show a review on your listening platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.